Welcome back to Mechanical Freak, a podcast you all know and love, coming from Seattle and New York, both cities of the future, maybe one more than the other, um, in both in neoliberal dystopia, though, today. <laughs> and wouldn't you have it, folks, uh, you got to just like right at the top, uh, you know, uh, just talk about the Buffalo shooter. Um, I mean, what, what do we even say to this like another white supremacist radicalized and driving into black neighborhoods and just you know going on a killing spree you know and i mean it's it's shocking um but not really uh surprising it's just really sad yeah i mean it it would be uh i guess more shocking if it were the first time it happened and not the 200th time that it's happened um and i mean there's obviously nothing unique about uh white supremacist violence against black people in the united states it's been interesting watching people try and figure out like how did this kid come across these crazy ideas it's like he lives in america you know like i mean yeah he could have come across it from any of the million sources of uh information here both mainstream and not that shovel this shit all day um but very yeah very tra- i mean this is tragic, like obviously our dominant like you know mainstream like coverage and narratives that we have i mean it's i don't uh, I, I don't know how you can be shocked when this is that's like what is mm-hmm. being fed right and that's like generally accepted as true you know um it's not like these ideas are fucking crazy but unfortunately they're like at the mainstream um to the point where they you know you can say it on the most watched news broadcasts and constantly and it's you know mm-hmm. accepted and has no backlash to it it's it's depressing to think but you know 50 years from now somebody might be recording something similar to ending the myth right um mm-hmm. because our legacy will be so vast by yeah that point. yeah they're gonna but, base uh, it off of our our show actually naturally. yeah and this will be just a, a footnote in the discussion right of this time period of you know increased sort of terrorist violent attacks against you know black populations against Jewish populations of you know, just white nationalist attacks in the United States. And uh, maybe this one will be one of the ones they mention, or maybe it'll just be in the long string of like, it happened here, 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 here kind of thing. Yeah. And it's, um, it's not great. It's not great. Um, and the response, of course, from officials has not been great either. Uh, so this morning, Lee Zeldin, uh, you know, tweeting uh, just, New York needs to bring back the death penalty. And oh. uh, Munya, can you possibly guess what district uh, <laughs> you know, Lee Zeldin's the congressional leader of in New York State? Uh, Come on, man. I mean, this is too easy. That that, that screams Long Island. <laughs> of course. Fucking Long Island. Mm. And um, 
so yeah cop island uh really cares about white supremacy <laughs> and uh you know definitely doesn't want to bring back the death penalty for other reasons that's for sure uh i'm sure lee zelda's never said this before or anything uh, i saw yeah. giuliani's dumbass son was similarly online doing this as well and <clears throat> it reminded me of last week and i was gonna bring this up on the show uh and then obviously the stuff in, in Buffalo happened. Uh, but uh, last week, Randy Weaver died. Um, and Randy Weaver is the sort of Pacific Northwest icon. Mooney, you're probably like a touch too young. Yeah. All his saga happened before you were born. But yeah. do, you, do you know at all who like Randy Weaver was? I, so. I've heard that name a couple times, but I really don't have context on Randy Weaver. So one of these great Pacific Northwest icons that somehow always gets forgotten when people want to talk about how progressive this area is. But um, back in the late 80s, Randy Weaver became a white nationalist survivalist uh, who uh, decided to shack up in Idaho as became the fashion of the time uh, in a little cabin out in the woods. He you know, sold guns to sort of make his living, which again, very common in that sort of milieu. And, you know, right after the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, in the United States, there was this thing which, Munya, you luckily have never had to live through this concept uh, and has never even probably occurred to your generation uh, called the peace dividend, which was which was the idea. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Which is the idea that when the Cold War ended, all that money that we had to spend on the military, right, because of the Cold War. All that money that we had to spend on internal security and policing because of the Cold War could maybe finally be spent on some sort of social services or making people's lives better, redirected towards fixing crumbling infrastructure. Uh, Now, you've driven on the roads here, so you know where that money didn't go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, there was a brief period where there was a big public cry that, like, Oh, that you told us for decades that we have to spend all this money uh, because of the Cold War. The Cold War is over. So let's let's talk about how we're going to spend the bonanza, you know. And so all these agencies, the military, various police agencies panicked and began to need to justify their own existence. Uh, the ATF uh, being one of those. And they tried to do a sting on Randy Weaver, but because not because Randy Weaver is particularly bright, but because the ATF is like literally comedic cartoonish level fucking stupid uh they ended up fucking up a gun buying scheme that they're trying to like entrap brandy weaver in uh (laughs) weaver then runs up into idaho to hide in his cabin because he thinks that the police are out to get him which is not wrong um and the atf uh goes to serve a warrant on his compounds uh, at which point, and you'll be shocked to hear this because this theme comes up over and over again, they botch the uh, warrant operation, uh, kill Randy Weaver's son in the what? process. <laughs> yeah, what? shocking news. Get, I, think, I think at that point they get an ATF agent killed as well. The FBI then takes over. Uh, the whole thing ends in a giant clusterfuck where they shoot like randy weaver's wife while she's holding his like uh, like one-year-old child uh shoot his wife in the head look you don't have to be like neo-nazis are cool to be like the police this is fucked up the police did this like and the cops weren't doing this because randy weaver's a nazi the cops are doing this just to like justify their budget essentially um but 
this whole thing turned Randy Weaver into this right wing, you know, sort of icon. He became like a regular on the uh, gun show circuit and stuff like that to talk about how the evil government under Bill Clinton is uh, trying to keep the white man down and all this. Uh, what were the Democrats doing at this time? Perhaps more important was uh, Bill Clinton was judo flipping all of this stuff to create a panic around right-wing militias. And again, mm. this is something that probably seems so foreign to your lifetime, Munia, because, I mean, like, this, it, it's been so far the opposite direction ever since. Yeah. Then, but, but there was a time in the 90s where the number one threat in America was white supremacist militias, right? You could watch on 2020. They weren't lone wolves. They, they weren't, weren't like lo- mentally ill lone wolves. <laughs> no, the lone wolf thing hadn't come into Teenagers. existence yet. Uh, <laughs> there, you could watch videos on like Dateline in 2020 of guys in camo, like in the woods of Michigan, like doing the monkey bars and stuff. And they'd be like, this is a, a white nationalist training camp. Uh, you know, these right wing militias are going to make war on the government or whatever. Right. And this was used as a post facto excuse to funnel tanks and like military weaponry to police departments. Cause you know, how could you combat this threat unless, you know, uh, LAPD had, you know, an army of tanks, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, based police now, you know, like now mm-hmm. they're going after uh right wingers. So we got to fund them. Now they're good. Yeah, I mean, the, uh, you know, shortly after the standoff at Ruby Ridge, which is what Randy Weaver was involved in, was the standoff in Waco with with the Branch Davidians. Oh, that's David Koresh, right? David Koresh, yeah. And and a similar thing, ATF was entrapping, essentially, the Branch Davidians uh, in a gun buying, you know, sting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Again, totally made for the press they invited the press to come to the raid right they're going to do a big raid on the bridge Davidian compound the reason why the davidians knew they were coming was because of all the press trucks showing up Um, (laughs) (laughs) like i mean really normal shit uh instead of knocking on the door to serve the warrant the atf like started smashing in the windows and like like you know laddering up onto the like roof of the compound oh, yeah. and stuff. Yeah, right. So like, it, like doing like a castle siege on the compound. Yeah. And you know, presumably I, I I'm assuming they just knew nothing about the branch Davidians. Had they asked anybody, they would know this was a apocalyptic Christian cult essentially. That yeah. believe the government would kill them all when the end times came as part of the sign that the Antichrist had arrived. Um so a gunfight ensued, uh, which was all broadcast live on TV, uh, to which the ATF essentially got, like, rinsed. But basically, I mean, looked like total chaos. I mean, they are just Damn. firing through the walls of this house. They had a helicopter flying overhead, just firing down into this building. Keep in mind, I mean, this is full of families and stuff. Yeah, it's right. Like... <laughs> There's, like, a bunch of kids there. Yeah, and uh, then the FBI takes over for a long, prolonged standoff uh, after 70-some-odd days the FBI then burns down the building, uh, killing everybody inside. They just raised everyone, right? Like, Yeah, yeah. They literally just burned the fucking building down with everybody inside it. Uh, really tragic shit. And again, like, you don't have to have some deep sympathy for the fucking weirdo Branch Davidians to see that, like, that's pretty fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, you know, pretty fucked up thing. But the Democrats cheered all this on because this was, they were taking a shot against the right, you know? But what was really happening in Washington 
was a series of legislations beginning with like the 94 crime bill, uh, et cetera, like that, where the Democrats were trying to reposition themselves as the tough on crime party. Mm -hmm. And they were able to take all this fear of right wing militias, of right wing terrorism, et cetera. And they were able to channel that in 1996 into the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, or AEDPA. And this was done because guys like Randy Weaver had to be stopped because the Branch Davidians who have been, despite actually being a very racially diverse organization, were kind of depicted as like a white nationalist cult, religious yeah. cult or something. Uh, Timothy McVeigh would blow up a federal building famously one year after the Waco siege. Uh, also, you know, uh, depicted as a white nationalist, which he was, you know. Um, so the Democrats said, we got to have this anti-terrorism and effective death penalty act in order to combat all this white nationalist violence. Um, <clears throat> what wound up happening, actually, and you'll be <laughs> shocked to hear, is that no white nationalist violence was ever uh, combated. That actually what the AEDPA did was it took away the ability of people on death row, uh, their ability to uh, appeal their case. So it extremely constrained the amount of appeals they could have uh, for federal uh, charges, right? So if they'd been given the death penalty under federal charges, they were allowed only one appeal and it had to be filed within six months of the conviction. Uh, they limited mm -hmm. the grounds on which they could appeal, like severely narrowed the grounds on which they could appeal. States, of course, <clears throat> you know, seeing the federal government do this, followed suit, passed their own versions of the statewide. And the end result was over the second half of the Clinton presidency. And by the way, this is all done to win the 96 election, right? This is all just campaigning, right? Right, Passing right. Um, which the Democrats were able to keep the presidency, but lost you know, seats in the House. I mean, like, you know, typical. Huh, shows, right? I wonder where I've heard that one before. Anyway. We got to move right to win. And of course, they lost everything but the presidency. But um, but what ended up happening is over Clinton's second term, the amount of people killed by the state, right? And, you know, by enforcing death penalty doubled in the United States, right? Because of this law. Now, were those people white supremacists? I mean, Timothy McVeigh certainly was executed during this time period. But the mm. vast majority were just poor black people, right? You know, again... Have you heard this before about the Clintons? Um, <laughs> another little side effect of the ADPA. And again, you might start to wonder this bill that they, you know, were constantly pushes. We need this to deal with domestic terrorism. Uh, why this got snuck in there. But in the ADPA, they also severely limited uh, the ways in which asylum seekers could essentially petition for asylum when crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. And what they did was they made it to where every individual border agent was an official representative of the federal government. So say you're an asylum seeker crossing into the United States. If a Border Patrol agent picks you up and arrests you and you tell the Border Patrol agent, I am an asylum seeker trying to you know, escape whatever into the United States, that Border Patrol agent has now heard your request. Your petition has been heard. And can now render a verdict on it. Oh, so they're like <laughs> the judge? Yeah. So they moved it completely out of the court system, right? And essentially, uh, you know, empaneled all the border agents <laughs> to be judges in these cases. 
<laughs> in which case, you know, I mean, you have border agent. You you could guess how uh, what kind of careful consideration border agents are giving these things as they're like locking these people up in outdoor cages mm-hmm. uh, on the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, it's part of a general program in the U.S. Uh, that uh, you know under the Clintons where the border just became a lot more deadly of a place uh like deaths on the border like quadruple under clinton uh because of his policies uh and this is you know part of that right it also allows for the expedited deportation of migrants which is what allowed barack obama to deport four hundred thousand people in a single year still a record so uh, barry's still got that part of his legacy nobody has deported more people than barack obama yeah yeah i was wondering that because like i knew that like uh you know uh under most of trump's presidency that was still true but i haven't checked in a few years and i guess yeah that's that's still legit yeah yeah it's still true and you know i mean not that like uh not to say that trump was soft on immigration by any means but uh obama just went so hard i mean it's it's like one of those ones. It's like a Jerry Rice's catch record, right? Or, yeah. you know, you see some of these in sports, you know, where you're just like, it's just as impossible. Like, nobody's ever going to break that. And, yeah, uh, right. And old Barry did that. He did the impossible. He he went for the gold and he, like, he really, uh, he, they dug deep. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> whatever sports metaphor you want. And he, uh, really just brutalized some of the poorest people on the planet. Um, and it was interesting because at the time, you know, you could say like, oh, maybe the Democrats had good intentions in passing this. And just like all good intentions of the Democrats, uh, what actually happens is it's just the poorest people in America get complete fucked by it. But yeah. at the time of debating the ADPA, which, by the way, um, one of the senators who's like a big contributor to this. What was his name? What was his name? Oh, Joe Biden. That's right. These people never go away, right? You just we're just gonna live with these people forever. But one of the, you know when this was being debated, people were coming out and saying like you know the NAACP was coming out and saying like all this is gonna do is you know we know that there's a lot uh you know there's this racial divergence in who gets the death penalty. Like we know that the death penalty is racistly assessed and handed out, right? Yeah. And so all this is gonna do is like make that crime worse by expediting all these people's executions right preventing them from being able to file appeals even though we know a significant number of de- uh, people on death row are probably innocent too you know mm-hmm. we find innocent people on death row all the time right you know they were they were making noise about that democrats didn't care didn't listen fuck them right who cares who 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 are the in de- who, who's the NAACP gonna endorse at the end of the year right like yeah. you know where they're gonna become republicans fuck them who gives a shit right amongst legal scholars i mean the immigration stuff was a little more hidden in there but amongst legal scholars i mean there was people too like this is from the new york times uh legal reporter anthony lewis uh at the time right this being written he says i have seen a good deal of nastiness in the work of congress over the years but i do not remember such detailed and gratuitous cruelty when talking about the immigration segment section of the aedpa you know, people knew what this was going to do to the you know populations that got victimized by it. But the Democrats snuck it in because it was good for elections. It allowed them to grandstand as the party of the police. Mm-hmm. And the end result was the American state became a lot more nasty and a lot more cruel. Right. And I just 
wanted to bring this up. I'd written an article about this for Mechanical Freak. We'll post it in the show notes. Yeah. I just wanted to bring this up because I feel like we're constantly on the verge of just reliving this cycle. Yeah, yeah. Go out and check out Brian's writing. It's really, really good stuff. Um, yeah. It's yeah. The shit. The shit really. You know, it just comes to head. Um, I got, yeah, it's it's hard to even know what to say because it just feels like we're like living in this repetitive loop, this like kind of death cycle, which coincides with just also just like a decline in just this, you know, this country and just capitalism in general. Um, these are all kind of these are all connected. So yeah, and it's it goes to show too. I mean. I know it's the annoying thing to say and all that kind of stuff, but you can't treat symptoms, right? You have to look at the actual problem. Like, what do the police actually do? Like, what's their actual function in society? You can't just give them a lot more power and weapons and things like that and say, oh, but I gave it to him for the right reasons. And yeah. think that that's going to, you know, end the way you want it. And, you know, the, you know, what happened to all those militias, right? Um, you know, in the 90s. Well, George W. Bush got elected. The militia movement decreased significantly because it just got folded into the Republican Party. And then when Obama got elected, it exploded again. And literally, it went nowhere, right? Like, I mean, not it went nowhere, like, politically, but like, none of this stuff stopped any of those right-wing groups from organizing, growing, mainstreaming, it didn't stop them from engaging in acts of violence. Immediately after the ADPA was passed, a abortion clinic bomber bombed the Atlanta Olympics. Uh, the FBI, given all this new enforcement power, all these new resources, completely fucked the fucking investigation. They were never mm. in the ballpark of catching this guy. They never even had it on their radar that this was probably a fucking right-wing psychopath, even though the bomb he used had been used in abortion clinic bombings and things like that, because the FBI didn't care about abortion clinic. I just, the theme here, right? Right. And ultimately that guy was caught by a grocery store worker who essentially saw him digging in trash behind the grocery store and gotten a like altercation with him. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and that's how he was captured years later. He bombed multiple abortion clinics after the, that later bombing. So none of this actually made policing more effective against the right. The right continued to grow apace. Their terrorism has gotten worse over time. And uh, it's just one of those things that we, we, you, you have to build a left movement. We cannot yep. count on the Democratic Party. No, you can't count on a Democratic Party. You can't count on, you know, just these established liberal institutions that, that you know, were you know, they're not created by or um, are designed to have power with people. I mean, that's the exact reason why the ruling class tells you to just vote and shut up, mm -hmm. right? Because it's the most um, politically impotent thing that you can possibly do, right? And goes nowhere. Um, yeah, we just need an actual, you know, left movement from the ground, right? That That is, uh, that is organized and... Uh, funding right-wing <laughs> militias to uh <laughs> to put down other right-wing militias that uh, being the you know police putting down a actual right-wing militia that doesn't work right and yeah. a right-wing institution that is uh predicated against protecting capital and oppressing poor people um is not going to be beneficial in the same way that maybe you know uh if, uh funding uh ukrainian uh you know militias mm -hmm. that uh 
you know, there might be blowback there from, you know, funding a Nazi militia organization just for, you know, short term ideas yeah. on what would happen and giving them tons of weapons right like that we've seen where that goes funding militias o- abroad um and guerrilla um armies you know uh that leads to uh bad things happening folks like not yeah. <laughs> we, we don't even, it's like it's not this is not speculation right like this is just um we know the story so and we know that you know if we just keep on running the same car at, at the brick, uh, we're going to, you know, crash the car again, right? Like, we don't need to see it to believe it at this point. Exactly. We've seen it. Exactly, exactly. Well, to go from that depressing news to uh, a more uplifting story. Uh, no, just kidding. But <laughs> we are going to go to a different. So we're going to go to the middle of the country here. I want to talk to you about Minneapolis, Munia. What do you know about Minneapolis? What? Where's Where's that? Yeah, no shit. I mean, good thing they have half the state's name in the city, right? Um, yeah, right. Minneapolis, I mean, if you were to ask me, what do you know about Minneapolis? I'd be like, I know Prince is from there, and I've seen Purple Rain a million times. Those are those are the two things that I know most about Minneapolis. Um, it sounds about right. I think they have, like, microbrews around there, or maybe that's Memphis. I'm not, I'm not sure. It's the Midwest, so I think we could say with a safe bet they do, but uh, I mean, who knows? Honestly, like Minneapolis is one of those cities that is just a like place. It's like a, a placeholder in your mind, and then you yeah. just project whatever you think the Midwest is <laughs> on top of it. Well, interestingly, you had posted this tweet, uh, Moody, in our, in our group chat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've noticed that the author of said tweet has since deleted it. But oh, wow. It was not like a necessarily particularly, um, I don't know. It, it wasn't like a hot take or anything. He was basically saying rent prices, average rent prices in Minneapolis are some of the lowest in the country. Uh, this is because Minneapolis had passed, I think, two years back, maybe three years back, a law that banned single family zoning. And yep. so that this was, you know, the urbanist, you know, dream of just getting rid of single family zoning. This was it paying off. Right. Finally. Um, and the interesting part is, and I'm not sure why he deleted this, is that like, well, it's not a 100 percent home run that that's true. <laughs> and, you know, just yeah. like, that statement's not like true, true. But the results are unclear enough that, I mean, you could probably put your foot on that and like claim it. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, it's I, not I like an outrageous be... claim yeah. based on the data. Right. It's not outrageously false at least yeah. right like um it's not clear that it's true either <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so it's kind of interesting i mean rent trends you know they're tracked a million different ways right so going to a million different people that track rent trends you know average rent is lower in minneapolis than and median rent is lower in minneapolis than in the rest of the country particularly if you looked at the coasts right the places where it's you know completely out of control although if you look at the rent prices over time it seems to exactly follow the national model yeah right it's not diverging in any way it's just lower on the chart essentially right and then i sent you this one did you see this price change by neighborhood chart i sent you yeah 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 
in the the neighborhood apartment rent trends in Minneapolis, uh, both for studios and one bedrooms. Yeah, and if you look at this, uh, what sticks out to you when you look? This is the annual change in you know average rent in these areas. Okay, so uh, so what what sticks out to you this chart, Runya? Well, I mean, what sticks out to me is that um, the annual change. There's a lot of uh, pluses instead of minuses so that means the annual change in rent has been going up year over year and there's some uh, particular uh, spikes um, specifically for uh, studios cedar riverside had a 49 percent annual increase in rents year over year um i think como had a 30 and uh this looks like an adjective oh carag carag so Carrig is one of these neighborhoods. It ha- it had an original name, which was like, you know, West Uptown or something like that. And then in the last couple of years, the residents who moved there have decided to change the name. So you can okay. guess what the original name of the neighborhood was associated with. They wanted to change the name, but we'll oh, get into that. All but right, yeah, all I right. think it's just Carrig, but who fucking knows? Who all cares? right. So Carrig, one bedroom, a 90% change. Um, yeah. annual change as well um, for one beds uh, that, yeah I mean all of these across the board are rents increasing uh, year over year and I guess maybe that's because this is uh, they had COVID pricing and such but um, and maybe this is like showing like the bounce back from that um, not really sure but I mean there's some neighborhoods that uh are the most expensive that had their rents completely double, which is not really normal either. So, you know, um, (laughs) usually not a good sign. No. Um, Yeah. I mean, basically what you see is like really dramatic increases, right? Increases of 40% or more or rent staying basically stable in the like negative five to 5% kind of range. Uh, if you were to go down this chart a little bit more, you'll see there are some areas where rent declined kind of dramatically, although North nothing, nothing like 40%. Declined 6%. Warehouse yeah. district declined 2% for studios. There's like a decline of 4% for one beds in Loring Park, which is the only decline in a Minneapolis neighborhood for one beds. So, you know, there are some. Yeah, and so what we're seeing, you know, in describing a chart that, of course, our listeners can't see here, but but what we're looking at, Munya, is uh, gentrification, right? Like, Uh when you see rents spiking in particular neighborhoods dramatically, staying stable or declining in other places, what you're looking at is entry points of gentrification. And... It, it got me thinking and I was like, you know, we should maybe look at Minneapolis a little bit because this show, whether we uh, know it or not, we spend a lot of time talking about <laughs> urbanism, really, mm-hmm. like, you yeah. know, how cities form, right? How they're rebuilt over time and things like that. Um, we're going to have coming up and ending the myth, a whole episode discussing, you know, what happened in the 50s and 60s with housing, right? Uh, housing's a big topic, right? It's where people live, right? So it's a topic people care about. Yeah. Um, in Minneapolis, it's interesting. I think from our position in Seattle and New York, uh, the Big Apple, as we call Seattle, because uh, yes, Washington yes. is where apples are from. That actually is like should be called the Big Apple, honestly. 
<laughs> in New York, uh, Bodega Bay, as we call it, yeah. because of the yeah. bodegas, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it's on the water. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but Minneapolis's sort of uh, population growth is a little atypical to maybe what we're currently used to in Seattle, New York. In Seattle, mainly because we're just at a very different stage of gentrification than Minneapolis is. In New York City, because New York City is a unique city in its urban development uh, to anything else in America, right? It is (laughs) therefore difficult to apply any lesson in New York to kind of anything else. But Minneapolis is a very typical Midwest city. And it had this thing that we were talking about a little bit offline that uh, that kind of surprised you a little bit, Moodya, uh, about its population. Do you want to do you want to share about Midwest cities and what happens to them? <laughs> yeah. So i I noticed that um, after 1950, and I first noticed this when I was looking at um, a graph of Chicago. And then I was like, oh, weird. Okay. Like Chicago actually peaked in the fifties and like has not bounced back uh, since. And, you know, then I was looking at other, you know, Midwest uh, cities and every single one of them, like their population in normal terms, not even adjusting for, you know, um, population growth, just like regular nominal yeah. change <laughs> yeah, in population, population from the yeah. gross population uh, declined just so significantly. I mean, almost all uh, cities in the Midwest, like Minneapolis, Detroit, um, you know, Chicago, all of these cities, St. Louis, you know, uh, completely just like uh, collapsed. And like, what's interesting about Minneapolis is uh, after 2010, that population has started to come back nowhere near again, the population of uh, 1950, which was at 521 or 20, 522,000 uh, people, if you want to round. Um, now it's, oh, so, and now it's at 400, 400, 443.7,000 uh, uh, today, right? Yeah, but, that's you after know, a significant 10 year bounce back. It's right? been a and big bounce back. Like was, 2010, yeah. there was three, uh, 383,000, um, you know people in minneapolis so you know that's like that's that's a significant increase but still not even close to where it was in 1950 yeah and so i mean basically what's happening and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about this ending the myth but the reason why you see this in the 1950s across the board particularly in the midwest is that prior to the 1950s there was an urbanist sort of policy, right, of building up city infrastructure, having jobs inside the city that are easy to get to and things like that, right? So Detroit got huge because the auto factories, there was a lot of auto factory work inside the city. You lived in the city to utilize the transportation resources of the city to get to your work, all this kind of stuff, right? Uh, we talked about this a little bit with Charles uh, when we mm-hmm. talked about Boeing and somehow talked about why cities decline. <laughs> talked about Detroit yeah. quite a bit. But, you know, interestingly, in the 1950s, the state specifically divests, right? So they fund by guaranteeing loans and things like that. They fund the creation of suburban neighborhoods. They, you know, fund the creation of highways and road infrastructure for cars and then allow, despite it being like obviously criminally fucking illegal uh they allow the auto companies to form shell corporations with which they tear up the 
uh, transportation infrastructure of cities. <laughs> you know, so they like rip out rail lines and things like that. Uh, very cool. Um, yeah, awesome. They hilariously, it's it's the auto companies that push for buses too. Like like we should get rid of trains and have buses. And the reason being, and this came out like internal documents in one of these court cases. Uh, one, I mean, they make the buses, right? So like obviously, yeah, plus, right. you know. But the other reason was they had this, they figured they're like, well, buses are going to be so awful to be in that uh, people just want to have a car. <laughs> like, yeah. be like, like the buses is going to be such a terrible experience that like it'll promote cars, right? Uh, but again, all this stuff happened. The state just allowed it to happen, you know. At the same time, they allowed the tax base inside cities to shrink up, right, by refusing to allow new forms of taxation. Uh, so once the, you know, property owners fled to the suburbs, they basically didn't come up with new forms of taxation to fill the gap, right? And so you had right. these ma major tax problems, right? States began, uh, pull, you know, states, you know, began putting in place things that ended revenue sharing so that revenue that had been raised statewide wouldn't go to cities like Detroit, you know, obviously mm -hmm. advertising to rural Michiganers. Like, do you really want to give those black people in Detroit, you know, your money? Right. And they essentially in a planned way depopulated these cities, you know? And wow. Yeah. And I think we want to be clear at this point because I think that the when we joke about urbanists on this show, it's not that like studying cities is stupid or something. Yeah, yeah. It's that it's essential to do. Yeah, and I think it's just that modern urbanists tend to have the same like religious fascination with the market that yeah. you know infects everybody under neoliberalism, right? Where right. they see the market, they see like cities are created and all this kind of stuff, you know they're created by market forces and all we need to do is just like nudge the market forces this way or that. Right. When in reality, they're like totally created top down. <laughs> like, like, yeah. Right. Yeah. The state creates the, you know, sort of environment and then allows the market forces to work once the environment's created. Right. But what was interesting about Minneapolis is that normally in these cities, what happens is, the white population leaves. The black population is trapped via racial covenants and things like that, right? You know, just not having, not being paid the same, racial pay gaps, you know, things like that, higher unemployment, all that kind of stuff are trapped inside the city, inside the urban core, right? Where it's not like Minneapolis, everybody just left. They just all moved to the suburbs and exurbs, right? Yeah. And, but in Minneapolis, the thing that's interesting about that is that Minnesota has no black people <laughs> historically hmm. <laughs> i'm sure if we looked into that that also is not an accident um more than a few sundown towns in minnesota but um minneapolis didn't have a huge black population in it when it depopulated so what's interesting about minneapolis is that it's really become it's like grown to become a blacker city since like 1980. That is interesting. Which is weird. That is not a normal like American like urban development. Like just how how like are we talking like a couple percentage points or like how how much are we talking? Basically, the population, the black population in Minneapolis in 1980 was 7.6 percent, right, of the population, uh -huh. right? 
below national average, right? This would be like Seattle, a very white city by yeah. national standards. It's it hovers between 19 and 20% today. Holy shit. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Which would be above national average, so right? Their black, ton, pe- their black population like more than doubled. Yeah, and it's gr- and it's not just that like the city's depopulated because since 1980 the city's actually grown in size. So it's not even a situation of like, well, that's just a sign of further like white people white leaving or something, right? Yeah. yeah, it's that like black people are moving to Minneapolis, like like have gone into the city, right? And it's wow. a little hard to figure this out because you'd have to go through the county by county sort of statistics in Minnesota. But, I mean, part of it seems to be that maybe the black population of Minnesota is concentrating in Minneapolis. Does that mean that other areas have become less, you know, habitable for them, you know, (laughs) as we've gone through the Reagan, Clinton, Bush, you know, Obama era? Has it become more difficult to live in some of those other? Maybe. I don't know. You know, it'd be interesting. Maybe we'll find somebody from Minnesota at some point that can give us the rural details of minnesota yeah (laughs) Um, another part of it is for reasons that i I was able to find a full-fledged explanation for but just because immigrant groups tend to clump right Mm -hmm. uh that the somali and ethiopian population of minneapolis uh like minneapolis has become a somali and ethiopian hub right that population has exploded um, so it's know. no surprise that Johan Omar represents Minneapolis then. Exactly, right? Like so, some national things sort of come into view, right? Yeah. But that being said, I mean, the black population isn't entirely migrant or whatever. There are plenty of, you know, just black people of America who live there, right? But it has had this weird thing happen since 1980 where the black population has grown again. Um, strange in an urban area in america because what's typically happened in the last several decades is urban property values have increased right and real estate's become very interested in developing urban areas which usually means that uh black people are shown the boot right as happened in seattle right we see exactly that in seattle where the black population in seattle has decreased and if you look in the exurbs and suburbs and exurbs of seattle the black population has increased right Uh, that is population removal right um, and so what we're kind of seeing in Minneapolis is gentrification at a slightly different stage, right? Um, not as advanced as it is here, but, uh, definitely working its way that direction. <laughs> um, yeah. Now, what's interesting is there's been some, uh, sort of studies on this and the University of Minnesota has been doing like a long running uh, sort of study on gentrification in Minneapolis. Uh, and here's, uh, I have some quotes I want to read you. This is from a report they had a couple of years ago about South Minneapolis. So mm. the other thing that's interesting is the black community in Minneapolis, while like pretty much being ghettoized wherever it is, right? And that's sort of trapped in these like pockets of the city is also kind of spread out. So there's like a black community in North Minneapolis, South Minneapolis, etc. right? Um, But I just wanted to read you some of these quotes. So they talk about how, you know, in interviewing people in these various neighborhoods, they're talking about the neighborhood of Phillips here, uh, which is on the south side of Minneapolis, uh, that there's a fear of uptowning our neighborhoods. And by uptowning, 
what they mean is there's a neighborhood just on the south side of downtown Minneapolis called Uptown. All right. Mm. Yeah. F- fucking neighborhood names, right? <laughs> yeah. About but, to say. Yeah. But Uptown is one of the first gentrified neighborhoods in Minneapolis, right? It was one of the first ones that's come in and the property values have really skyrocketed. Um, you know, attached to a greenway, uh, which you can hear about right here. So this is, you know, talking to one of the Phillips neighbors, uh, one of the people who lives in Phillips, which I mean is, you know, not a fully black neighborhood, but maintains a neighbor that has a large black population. Quote, so I think the Greenway is a perfect example, if you look at it from uptown, of what the people who started the Greenway wanted to see, meaning all that white high-end high-rises moving along the Greenway. They wanted to develop an expensive high-rise here, and the East Phillips Neighborhood Association fought them and fought the proper and bought the property from under them, and they built low-income housing. And that went up maybe two or three years ago. So that was a big push, kind of like, wait, no, you're not doing that here. But it was just a clear example of what the Greenway, the people that were starting the Greenway, I think, consciously or unconsciously were thinking what was going to happen uh, was that white flow or that gentrification flow from uptown would get to here. So they, sorry, they, when they say they bought the building, was it the like they pressured the city into acquiring the building instead of like the um, developers? Essentially, a neighborhood association was created and bought the building, bought the property so developers couldn't buy it. Right. And so this is like this is just like people in the neighborhood pulling in money, basically. So another thing that's interesting about Minneapolis is there actually is a lot of like fairly decent political organization. A lot of stuff that's actually left over from the late 60s, even uh, particularly in North Minneapolis, but in some of these neighborhoods where they have closer knit communities that can do some of this fighting back kind of stuff uh, against this gentrification push. Although uh, I think we're going to find that it's pretty hard to push back against this kind of money. And what they're talking about, I mean, they keep mentioning the Greenway and the Greenway was this big fight in Minneapolis. It's uh, a strip that followed an old rail line that kind of went across, you know, east to west across the south side of downtown in Minneapolis, right? Mm-hmm. The rail lines hasn't been used in decades, right? And back in the 80s, 90s, there was these stories of, oh, that's where, like, if you're homeless, you you could live in this area, like along this rail line, those places you could live, right? Yeah, uh, right. Also, also, the, the story's always about teens tagging, you know? <laughs> 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 teens, gotta be worried about teens, you know? Uh-huh. And of course, the requisite fears of gang activity, of course, because you see teens, you see their color, and you say gangs, right? Gang, yeah. And, uh, you know, so this area, you know, being a blacker part of the city was always an area that was considered by the the good people of the city, a scary side of town, the bad side of town. And this particular track, area of train tracks, because of its visible homelessness and things like that, and graffiti and stuff like that, became the like sort of locust of all the like bad feelings about this area of town. Like, you know, Oh, there's a bad area of town and that, that rail track, like that's, that's where the bad stuff happens. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, not in the city where Prince's horrible family are stealing his music and license it in ways he would never allow to happen. The true crime <laughs> in Minneapolis. But anyway. <laughs> so what the city did is in the, in 2000, they uh, passed a bond 
to essentially turn that into a greenway. So they were going to build up along that strip and, you know, put in plants and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think they ripped up the train track and they put in bike paths going along there. Right. Now, the city was very clear that they were doing this because they wanted to attract the right kind of residents of the area. <laughs> right. You know, they wanted they wanted to bring in creative class people. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, implying that I mean, it wasn't that this was unpopulated, you know, I mean, so obviously there was a wrong kind of resident. Right now. You know, Minneapolis is not a city like Seattle today, where uh, if anything is open up for development, it just immediately blows up, right? You know, or New York areas of New York City, where if anything in Brooklyn opens up for development, it's immediately turns into million dollar houses, you know, housing mm-hmm. or you know, uh, apartments that can jack up rents and things like that. You know, it was a city that was still trying to. I mean, it was a city that was still. I mean, almost had declining population, right? Like, as yeah, trying right. to bring people in the city. And so initially the Greenway wasn't super successful, right? Like uh, there was all sorts of warnings about like, oh, don't go to, don't ride the Greenway at night because, you know, those people are there, right? <laughs> you know, uh, oh, uh, you know, one account I was reading um, from somebody, an actual bike lane advocate or whatever, who was so, right, who lived in Minneapolis at the time was talking about like, oh, I used to see, uh Indiana or um, Minneapolis, I keep saying India. Minneapolis has like a large uh, Native American population. Was saying that there was a group of like Native American men who used to like drink under one of the uh, bridges, like along the Greenway. There was rumors of muggings and things like that. You know, a little unclear if any of that actually was like really happening. But they essentially decided to up the policing along the Greenway. So that's step one: more cops. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is like a requirement with gentrification is that you like police are needed to like forcibly remove and protect new property. Yeah. And and this woman talks about how she would see the police like harassing these Native American men who were drinking in the Greenway. And she's like, you know, the interesting thing was like some of those men had bikes like they were using it for its intended purpose, but were obviously not its intended users. Right. Yeah. Um, But then essentially the businesses you know the business community there in the chamber of commerce then hired their own private security which was all off-duty cops to patrol the greenway to put even more cops on the ground now they've since wrestled that territory away so the greenway if you went there now is everything you probably would imagine such a project would look like which is you know urban outfitters on one side uh, candle shops selling $60 candles on the other, <laughs> you know, and uh, white people plenty just riding up and down. And the Greenway has been a sort of locus of expansion off of it as far as gentrification, right? You know, as far as building more expensive housing, building the kind of shops or whatever that a, uh, you know, professional class person, a member of the creative class might Yeah, enjoy. yeah, a creative <laughs> 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 exactly right and it's very interesting in this report they even mentioned i keep bringing up the candle shop uh because they mention how uh you know they started to get nervous in the neighborhood because somebody opened up a 20 dollar a candle candle shop in the neighborhood and they knew like uh as they say it's gonna be a hipster mix right and that's, that, yeah. that's gonna bring in gentrification and they mentioned that the candle shop had four of its windows busted out <laughs> <laughs> and protect as, as gentrifiers, right? You know, 
you know, this this type of action against gentrification is like I don't know if I'm just oblivious, but I just it's not like the same that I've kind of seen in Seattle. Maybe we've all been too far gone, but like I don't know. Is this what this is what is this what like uh you know fighting against and like possibly even like winning gentrification kind of looks like? I mean, it seems like these are like real actions. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly what fighting against it looks like. I think it also just shows, like, the ambient anger in a lot of these neighborhoods. Whereas in Seattle, that anger was being, you know, channeled into more useless <laughs> pursuits, <laughs> right? Which is petitioning the city council and having, um, you know, equity boards that will hear you and see you and things like that. Yeah, um, right. I think Minneapolis just doesn't have a lot of that. And right. so with nowhere for that anger to be channeled, it's channeled at the actual gentrifiers themselves, wow. right? Like it's channeled in ways that might actually have some sort of impact, right? And, you know, there's a lot of reasons why Seattle has grown at one rate and Minneapolis has grown at another. Of course, but, yeah. But certainly resistance to gentrification has to be part of it, right? And, you know, the other part of it too is that Minneapolis just had, you know, it's always hard in the US, right? Because you don't want to get stuck in these uh identity things of like you know black people are like this white people yeah, are like yeah, this or right. whatever <laughs> but it is an absolute fact that in the united states uh where you're not allowed to talk about class and you don't keep a lot of data on class that race can stand in for class because the black population is historically poor and more working class right mm-hmm. uh the black population of the united states for a lot of reasons that we go into on ending the myth also has a lot longer history of social solidarity with, with themselves right with themselves. <laughs> wonder wonder how that happened <laughs> yeah not for a lot of good reasons you know yeah. i mean mainly because of horrifying external causes um but i think that the the size of the black publisher in minneapolis i think it's greater solidarity has led to much more vigorous opposition to this kind of activity yeah now we've seen it in smaller scale in seattle but i think the problem is the central district population was always just so small when gentrification hit it It was like encircled basically already yeah yeah it already been encircled and when it hit it was hit at a time when like the the population on all sides was just demobilized by the clinton 90s in a way that it's not quite the same today you know, so I think it's just a lot of like little details like that kind of spell the difference. But there have been efforts in the central district to like, oh, this like shopping center is going to be purchased and developed into like, you know, the like five over one, you know, apartments. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're going to try and buy it and, you know, save it for like black businesses or whatever. Right? Or like I think like the fire department too. like was that like i think there's something about like community fire department there too i'm i'm yeah might be tripping but yeah there's been some efforts to like yeah create these community resources to try and maybe buy up some of these properties to prevent but i mean anybody who's lived in seattle for 20 years you know last three years or whatever can drive through the central district and tell you this is not what the central district used to look like no <laughs> like, no like, it's alien <laughs> yeah the battle's lost essentially right like we drive through it's it's done um but for various reasons in minneapolis right that's not the case in some of these yeah. neighborhoods you know uh by the way another interesting example of this is in new orleans where the black population actually has a very long history in new orleans of uh community organizing particularly around the protection of public housing 
Oh, uh, wow. they, were, they were really effective at fighting the Clinton administration's efforts to destroy public housing in New Orleans. Uh, and they were able to maintain a lot of like the tower housing and stuff that other cities demolished. Oh, that's amazing. Um, yeah, then something happened and uh, that changed. Mm, so, fuck. you know, it's a contingency, right? You'll also hear that on Ending the Myth, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll talk about New Orleans. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and it's interesting, right? So they, they talk, I mean, here, here's like a funny thing, you know, here's why the neighbors says, we have a lot more Caucasians that are in the area than there used to be. <laughs> <laughs> and again, it's not to say that there aren't poor white people or whatever. But it's just that, like, you know, race kind of stands in for glass in, in conversation in America, yeah. right? And and I think, like, when you hear people these days say, like, we got a lot more Caucasians, uh, they don't need poor white people. <laughs> like, like, yeah, they, we're like, not like, talking about, about like, <laughs> <laughs> like, gilded age, like, mine workers, you know? I mean, they're like, it, when, yeah, when, I, I mean, like, that's what you have to understand, like, you know, even like, if you're on the left in America, like, you know, that when people, especially when black people say, oh, like, white people be like this and that. It's it's a, it's commenting on like you know a particular class of the of white <laughs> yeah, people, yeah. yeah, a very visible class that is seen as I mean, you know, not to be uh, dramatic as an enemy, right? In this case, right? yeah. because their presence in your neighborhood means that you're about to be thrown out of the fucking neighborhood. I mean, literally, like it's it, we really shouldn't even. Um, just in discourse, we being just like the U.S. in general, the way we talk about gentrification, like it, it, we really shouldn't distance it too much from just the functions, primary functions of settler colonialism in general. Like, you know, like mm-hmm. what's what's what happened one in like the U.S. with, you know, like eradicating uh, and murdering and displacing Native Americans. I, I, I don't know what you call um, how you can call like gentrification really like any different where you have a um you know a force that is protecting capital and like is interested in displacing a huge swath of people in order for other people to settle there right um same thing that you could even you know different maybe uh functions but ultimately the same base you know in israel uh and you know uh, occupying palestine as well i mean like the the way that these functions are essentially kicking out a predominantly indigenous group of people or people who have been there before who have established community there and uh you know either wealthier people or people from the you know oppressing class coming in to kick them out and take their place right yeah and control uh you know their area like that's i mean (laughs) it's it's functions in a lot of the same way yeah, you could see a uh, like New York Times opinion piece being written trying to concern troll people about like uh, settlements in Palestine and being like, uh, you know, why do the Palestinians like why are they so aggressive about these settlements? Uh, it's just diversifying the neighborhood. Right? Yeah, right. right. <laughs> but you know, it totally misses the point of what the settlements are there to do, right? And mm-hmm. like what the like what allowing them to be there is going to do, right? Um, you know, and so. This is from the study. I'm just going to read this quick little paragraph here. So it's talking about the anxiety that uh, the neighbors feel, like how in all the conversations, the fact that we keep seeing white people <laughs> leads to anxiety. <laughs> so they say, Relatable. Um, almost, <laughs> almost all our stakeholders associated shifting racial demographics with the increased presence of whiteness in parts of South Minneapolis that white buyers had historically avoided. 
For residents of color to see white joggers out late at night reinforces for them the imbalanced racial hierarchy that criminalizes some while absolving others. For the sheer quantity of new white residents created anxiety for long-term residents, leaving them to question the future of their neighborhood. And, you know, this sort of gets to, you know, some of these points about this anxiety, right? Uh, You know, we joke a lot about, like, you know, bike paths or whatever, bike lanes. Yeah, this guy's yeah. On the show. And, you know, I want to be clear, like, we don't, I don't give a shit that people want to ride their fucking bike. Who cares? Right? You know, not like bike the riding, point. It's not the fucking point, right? It's that how things like the Greenway in Minneapolis are actually used, like how they're actually used and how they actually function. And yeah, in this, you know, there's a, you know, one of these, uh, you know, members of the black community in St. Philip or in Phillips, sorry, talks about how, you know, yeah, we see all these white joggers at night and we just laugh and we're like, you know, like not me, man. And the reason and what they're saying is like when we're jogging at night, the police attack us. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, there's study after study that shows that, you know, when it comes to things like bike usage and stuff like that, you know, who gets ticketed for not wearing a helmet while riding a bike? Right. You know, who's considered suspicious on a bike? Like who's going to be asked if they're sitting with their bike, if the bike is stolen or not. Right. And what we find again and again is that this infrastructure is built for particular populations that the city wants to bring in. Mm-hmm. And other populations are considered aliens to the infrastructure, and it's not considered desirable for them to even have access to it. Yeah. Basically, what we see kind of happening in Minneapolis is these neighborhoods, there's a lot of empty housing, right? So the city once had over half a million people in it, it then declined to like 300,000. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> like Detroit, like, you know, Pittsburgh, right? I well, really, like, just encourage people to just look at these graphs. Like, I mean, like, look at St. Louis. Like, I mean, it, it's it's really shocking. Because, like, there's some, like, you know, Minneapolis that are, like, kind of, like, on the rise now. But, like, most of them are still, like, falling or not even having, like, a direct trend back um, yet. Uh, it's, it's, it's like, yeah, it's a huge collapse. Yeah, and, I, and it's, it's worth looking at. I mean, just type in any city in the Midwest and just put in population over time. And then yeah. you can find the, like, graph of their population over the last hundred years. And it's, it's inevitably, it is rising, rising, rising to get the 1950s. Then it immediately collapses. And... and- some have slight upticks now, you know, Pittsburgh, right? I think St. Louis, Minneapolis, obviously. Uh, some still declining. Detroit. St. Louis does not have an uptick. Like St. <laughs> no, Louis no, was a, uh, no, no uptick. Uh, St. Louis actually declined even like year over year. Um, but nice. uh, like, yeah, their population in 1950 was 856 or 857,000 yeah. uh, people. That's more than what Seattle is today, by the way. Yeah. Um, today it is 292,000, right? <laughs> <Incredible>. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And you know, yeah, it's, it hasn't it's, been that low. It, it's been higher in 1870, uh, yeah. in St. Louis. <laughs> I mean, wow. <laughs> like, obviously you can write an entire book about St. Louis. I'm sure somebody has. So I want to, want to dig out, want to find some good actual, like urban history of St. Louis. Um, but yeah, I mean, these are choices, right? And and for Minneapolis, I mean, let's be clear. For Minneapolis, like, the effort to build the Greenway and build all that stuff up, that could all just fall in flat. 
Like, yep. you know, listeners might remember we talked about Aberdeen at one time, <laughs> essentially doing a similar type <laughs> project. And it does not improve the population of Aberdeen, right? <laughs> it could all fall in flat, right? But for whatever reason, they were able to attract the young professionals that they wanted. And now that those people have a foothold, right, in order to build that population that they want, and this is, I mean, this is, I keep saying it because this has to be the clear point, they're building a population they want, they're going to have to remove the current population, right? Yes. And Minneapolis is one of those cities where this is really easy to do because you have huge chunks of real estate that are either abandoned, owned by the city because they've been abandoned, or thanks to the 2008 financial crisis that hit the black population especially hard, are full of people who no longer have leases on their houses and things like that, right? So it's it's land that can be easily bought up and developed, right? But it's never developed for the people who live there. It's always developed for some future population at the expense of the people who live there, right? Right. And the reason being, of course, because of, you know, and again, it just sounds stupid to have to say it out loud, because of money. Right. Yeah. right. They don't want they don't want this group that they call the creative class. They don't want them because they're so got gosh darn creative. I love I love the uh, the squiggly vases that they uh, produce. Right. The graph. Yeah. The, squi- the squiggly uh, sans serif um, graphic design that they <laughs> all of them probably do like, using the same typeface. They love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they want, uh, you know, they're not, yeah, they, they want them to bring their Bitcoin mining operations <laughs> into yeah, Minneapolis, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, they don't want them because they're creative. They want them because they have money, right? And ultimately, when this stuff gets talked about, that it ultimately always comes down to revenue, revenue generation, right? Which, even for the city of Minneapolis, you can, you know, put a not cynical sort of take on this for you know like the mayor's city council of minneapolis where it's like look their revenue generation was killed by people leaving the city it was then killed by the state passing laws that prevented revenue sharing and things like that and so you know you could say like well yeah of course the city needs to bring in these higher income people because otherwise the city has no goddamn revenue right but that all places this in the realm of natural activity as if this wasn't all just creative, right? Like, this isn't the product of choices over and over again, made by city leaders, made by business community, you know, made by all the people who have a say in how cities are developed, right? <laughs> At the expense of all the people that are just fucking ignored, you know, always, right? And so I want to just read it again. There's another quote from a resident in Phillips, and he's talking about the, you know, that it's obvious when you look at these areas who they're trying to bring in and who they're trying to keep out. Right. And this is a black business owner right here. And he says, quote, because black folks weren't born with money and a lot of white folks weren't born with money either, but the ones that want to make something out of themselves, those are the ones that the banks turn down. They'll give it to the Africans. They'll give it to the Hmongs. They'll give it to the white folk, but the black man will walk in there. They're going to judge him. His shoes better be shining. He's got a tie on and a briefcase with just paper in it, because if he doesn't, they ain't going to give him nothing. And that's real. Hmm. And Sucks. yeah, and I mean, and look, there's there's a lot to unpack in that statement, <laughs> right? You know, uh, the you know, the fact that the African migrant community and the black community do not always get along. <laughs> <laughs> 
the fact the Hmong community is an Asian community from Laos uh, that uh, was largely brought into play. It's actually weirdly to like Minnesota, Wisconsin uh, in the late 70s or in the mid to late 70s. Uh, the Hmongs were a an ethnic group and Laos has been traditionally treated like shit who because of that uh, sided with the United States and the Vietnam War. <laughs> Uh, and oh, wow. a large group of uh, Hmong were then brought to the United States, uh, lest they get the retribution of, you know, being on the losing side of a war, right? But the point being, I don't like to, I don't want to generalize too much, but there's a politics in the Hmong <laughs> community that might overlay with certain American political ideas. Um, that's not 100% the case or whatever, but I think that's where some of the anger in the community between these communities kind of comes up <laughs> um where it sort of pops up but you know he's bringing up a very important point though is you know look there's all this land that can be developed it can be developed cheaply even because it's been abandoned but the route to get a hold of the money to develop that land is blocked you know mm-hmm. you have to be the right type of person to get the money to develop that land, right? So that development is going to have a very particular character because it's already been gatekept from the beginning to determine who's going to develop it, right? And so you get a situation in Minneapolis where you build a city through, through these policies that are increasing this gentrification, that are bringing the right people in, meaning expelling the wrong people, you build a city that becomes hostile to a certain portion of its population. Now, we talked a little bit about South Minneapolis, right? We talked about the Greenway. And the reason for this is one of the neighborhoods right next to Uptown that has been gentrified uh, because of the Greenway, right? That was the starting point, is a neighborhood called Powderhorn. All right. Mm. Now, Powderhorn is just on the other side of the highway and goes south off of the Greenway. Now, the gentrification has tended to start on the Greenway side, right? Because that's where the city planners and where the Chamber of Commerce, everything, has concentrated their foothold and are moving south from there. And has is, you know, begun to move south. Well, about 20 blocks or so south of the Greenway is the intersection where George Floyd was killed. Oh, wow. On the southern edge, where what's left of the black population of the neighborhood meets the gentrifying population just above it moving south. Now, it's interesting. I had to dig and actually go through papers from Minnesota, Minneapolis papers, because this doesn't make it into the national coverage. But when residents were asked immediately in the aftermath, the subject of gentrification came up over and over again when talking about George Floyd, right? And when we talked about the Greenway and how they brought in more cops, right? They had to get these cops in there to get rid of the people that were fucking up the project, right? The cop presence moves with the gentrification, right? It moves south. Yeah. It begins you know, harassing people. It gets more violent with the people who don't belong there. George Floyd himself grew up in an area of Houston that's now been basically fully gentrified and he would no longer be have been welcomed in himself he had moved to minneapolis i mean part of whatever this weird migration that i still don't fully understand 
what was going on in Minneapolis, that it had this large black migration and then was ultimately killed on the border of the expelling, you know, of the black population from Minneapolis itself. Now, this might also explain a little bit, you know, put into maybe an even starker relief, why a police station got burned the fuck down in Minneapolis as well. Right. You know why people in Minneapolis were so fucking pissed off, you know, about this murder, you know, sure. People get die every day. Right. But what does this symbolize? You know, what does this mean? And I wanted to pull up a quote here. We'll see if I get paywalled by the New York times here. All <laughs> right. So the failing New York times had an article in 2020, um, titled a Minneapolis neighborhood vowed to check its privilege. And now it's being tested blocks from where George Floyd drew his last breaths. Residents have vowed to avoid the police to protect people of color and their commitment is getting hard to keep. And this is talking about the people who live North of where George Floyd was killed uh, right next to the Powderhorn park. Um, I'll show Mooney a picture. Not that I figured you could probably guess what they look like. Oh, yeah. Can you see the picture? I can't yeah, I, I do. Yeah, so you can guess what these people look like. Um, okay, so this is from the New York Times article. When Sherry Albers, talking about why these people have moved into the neighborhood, moved three decades ago into Powderhorn Park, a tree-lined Minneapolis neighborhood no, uh, known as a haven to leftist activists and bohemian artists like herself, <laughs> she went to work sprucing it up. She became a block club leader, organizing her mostly white neighbors to bring in playgrounds and help tackle long-standing issues with crimes. On many nights, she banged on the car windows of men who had come to solicit prostitutes outside her door, she said. <laughs> she kept meticulous notes when dozens of men would gather in a circle for gang meetings in the park across from her house. After each episode, she called the police. Hell yeah. So... You know, gentrification, it's the product of a lot of economic forces coming together. It's real estate looking for higher rates of profit, right? And just things to, to, to develop, right? Places to invest capital to extract profit, right? It's cities organizing for a variety of reasons to bring in the right people and, and expel the wrong people, right? It's uh, the police being used to investigate property or to you know protect property and such. It's also these people coming in and feeling that this is somehow their fucking right responsibility or duty to be clear at no point is it confirmed that she is at all witnessed any crimes. Yeah. She's knocking on people's windows because she thinks they're soliciting prostitutes. Why does she think that? Who knows? New York times didn't bother to ask, you know, are they who fucking knows? I mean, it's a neighborhood that's not normally where you would solicit prostitutes. So I'm going to venture a guess. She saw a like black person in a car. In a car. You know, yeah. You know. Not getting out of his car. I see gang members, men in the, in the, in the parks. So I'm keeping meticulous notes on them. I would almost pay anything to see those notes. By yeah. The way. I uh, need to see that. What do you think in the description in those notes? What do you think is maybe a, a recurrent theme? <laughs> No, I mean, <laughs> I mean, like, if they're personal notes, she must like not be. She must not like you know even like skip the thinly veiled, uh, you know, descriptors. You know, she must like use like 
the hard ER. <laughs> she's woken up. She's just like a group of African Americans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> called the police. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I mean, look, if you see, so look, if you see men gathering in a park, there's a lot of ways you could see that. One way is that that is people recreating in a recreational area. <laughs> and we see that every day. You know, you yeah. drive by Green Lake, I see men gathering in Green Lake <laughs> at all hours. All yeah. right. And that's what we call recreating in the park. It's never occurred to me to call the police so that they are gangs or whatever. You know, I think we could venture a guess as to why she feels these are gang members. Right. Yeah. You know, and why the correct answer is to call the police. So after the George Floyd protests, right, uh, she assures the New York Times that her and her neighbors have made a, a solemn vow that they are no longer going to call the police on their black neighbors. Wow. <laughs> I mean, inspiring. Uh, and that they're going to look for other community based solutions. But now something different has happened. Uh, it's testing them. Which is Minneapolis, like many cities in America, for all the reasons we've actually talked about up to this point, has a growing homeless population. All right. Because rents, contrary to the original tweet, have not gone down, but have actually gone up. And just like everywhere where housing costs have gone up, homelessness has increased. Right. And in the park across from her house, the homeless have dared to form a community. <laughs> and Oh, no. Yeah. And, it, and they're a group of homeless people who are living across from the park. And so the New York Times picks it up. The influx of outsiders has kept Miss Albers awake at night. Though it is unlikely to happen, she has had visions of people from the tent camp forcing their way into her home. She imagines using a baseball bat to defend herself. Not being able to call the police, as she has done for decades, has shaken her. I am afraid, she said. I know my neighbors are around, but I'm not feeling grounded in my city at all. Anything could happen. Holy shit. So she's fantasized about becoming a, a true crime case or whatever. Yeah. And because of that, the homeless are now scared are scary and criminals. It's amazing how she's like, it was just like, yeah, I made this thing up in my head. And now this like this idea dominates my whole life. Yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> now I'm going to base my entire life around. <laughs> yeah. This, right? And, you know, and it's a thing that we cover in Seattle all the time that a lot of times that, you know, crime as in, in popular imagination is a vision of crime. Right. It's not yeah. a reality. Right. It's just a fantasy that you project. Right. And, you know, why might a homeowner in an up and coming neighborhood in Minneapolis uh, who bought, you know, bought the dip, as it were, when she bought mm. her house? maybe be concerned about a homeless neighborhood across, you know, the, the way from her, uh, you know, could it be that it's hurting her property values? Could it be that she just doesn't like the sight of poor people and thought that that's what she was, you know, investing in. It was not having to look at them, you know, that that's why you pay Minneapolis PD is to make sure you don't have to look at these people. Right. Isn't that what they were doing with George Floyd in the fucking first place? Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you see the sort of how gentrification changes the city. It, it, 
So maybe it's better to think about gentrification as essentially terraforming the city for a whole new class of residents. Long story short, in the New York Times article, uh, they decided they need to call the cops again. Uh, Minneapolis, by the way, has slowly peeled back the few reforms they were <laughs> able to pass regarding policing since the George Floyd killing. Wow, that was quick. We'll be bumping up police budgets. Uh, I'm sure they're going to be right in line for that Biden bump in police budgets. And this, I guess, brings us back to the discussion about the single family zone, <laughs> right? And is there a world where I guess uh, getting rid of single family zoning might decrease house prices or stop gentrification? I think the issue is you can only believe that if you believe that the that this is all a product of the just the functioning of the market, right? The market has a natural state, supply and demand, right? And all we have to do is increase supply, right? And problems are solved, as opposed to the fact that. I think what we tried to or I've tried to lay out here is that urban development is a complicated series of choices that people make about who they want to live somewhere. Yeah, exactly. And if you're on the outs, it doesn't matter how much fucking housing they build. They won't let you have it. Yep. It's beside the point. It's beside the point. Exactly. And I think this gets to people's anger and why we talked about in that you know episode we talked about bike paths or whatever, we talked about how there there are certain you know um, like urban infrastructure things that get done, and you know people in poor communities and stuff will oppose them, and you know members that that infrastructure members of the class that infrastructure is meant to serve will be like, oh, those people just love their cars or they're just backwards or whatever. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to understanding that like. That opposition comes from a well understood and historical truth, which is when you see the developers starting to develop in your neighborhood, that means they're getting ready to throw you out. And so even if you want that infrastructure, its arrival is usually a sign of doom for you. Right? You're not yeah. gonna get to have it. You know? Yeah, and if you base your entire analysis on the character of a, you know, a reactionary boomer who like you know is trying to protect their single family home and the flip side of that is the um more hip uh property mm -hmm. owner or aspiring property owner who you know wants all development to happen that's like that's it that's an intra property owning beef yeah. that you're kind of projecting into um, a whole sphere of race class um you know uh gender like all all of these um you know forces and capitalism too right and so to think that every single car owning uh person is like a uh is a backwards like reactionary hick is like is just so disingenuous and beside the actual point which is that um you know bike lanes and all of these um gentrification symbols that we have from learning and like from seeing it happen right uh under capitalism uh and a perverse housing market uh you know uh means that something bad is going to happen to the uh probably low-income community where those are coming in right and that's why you see hostility to that um mm. you know um get some perspective i think yeah. you know um is a really zoom out a bit and it's not it's not about uh 
you know, as much as it, it makes them feel good to think that it's about like bikers versus car people and car people are the thing of the past and bikers are the future. Um, that's a very minute dichotomy, mm-hmm. right? Um, it's a very small and meaningless in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. And it misses the point of what's actually happening, right? Which is that real estate development, right, is about making money, right? Is housing, like everything in America, is a commodity that is sold for profit. It's not sold to house people. Mm-hmm. Its job is not to ensure that everybody has a roof over their head. Its job is to make people rich, right? And in a society as unequal as the United States, which is getting more unequal by the day, those real estate developers, when they build housing, the people that they're looking for are always going to be the people that have money, which is becoming a narrower and narrower section of the population, right? Because that's where the profits can be ringed, right? Yep. And the thing is, for certain populations, you know, for poorer populations in Minneapolis or Seattle or any other city, although fucking doesn't really exist in Seattle anymore, right? For those poorer populations, there's never going to be a market to build housing for them. Because you just can't wring the profits out of it that you can out of these other things. Now, you could shove them into old buildings and then, you know, charge them insane rents and things like that. You can wring money that way, right? But that's not what gentrification is about, right? Gentrification is about the production of new real estate and things like that. So that has to be mm-hmm. sold to a narrow band of people. It's opening new markets in a specific lucrative market, right? And that yeah. only consists of a certain, you know, group of people. And it requires a removal of another group of people. Yeah. And so like I, we're basing our entire like housing off of a money making venture, right? Yeah. Like Larry landlords are in the business to make money, right? Yeah. They're not they're not there because they want to make money and you know help people out. It's to make money, right? Um that's why you get a lot of shitty landlords, right? Because there's a direct contradiction between actual quality of life and quality of living uh and uh you know making your profits right yeah you have to dig into profits in order to do that there's the direct contradiction there um you know if we base housing it, to that person who's fantasizing about uh prostitute uh solicitation outside of her home and uh homeless people like raiding her house right um it, another effect of making housing a marketplace is that you uh, once someone buys into that, making like one of the biggest financial decisions they'd make in their life, um, they have to basically even like regardless of who they are as a person, moral character, even like aside, although that's a part of it. Um, y- when you put yourself in the position where your entire livelihood, right, is sunk into that property almost in the flip of a switch, it puts you in the position to defend that at all costs, yeah. right? You become Which a means little baron. Tr- yeah, right. You, you become a little baron. And um, that that is simply systematically a result. Like, sure, there are like piece of shit people. Um, and certainly that being in that position will make you more of a piece of shit, just like cops, right? Mm-hmm. But I mean, like, if you're put into the position of a cop and oppressing people, I don't like morality and like just like you know personality aside um being in that position of power um will make you dehumanize others and ultimately just become a cop right like that that's like systematically that's the person it produces the person that the homeowner produces is someone who is extremely leveraged on that home and has a direct interest 
in having that property value go up. And that means that they're going to do the same shit as the cops and like be invested in this settler project, right? So it's just, that's the type of class that they've actually bought into. Yeah, and I mean, that's a good point. I mean, we tend to individualize structural forces, right? And it's like, and we certainly on the show make fun of homeowners a lot and talk about homeowners yeah. a mistake, like it's done to all <laughs> these people. But the thing is, it's these structural forces. All the incentives are towards this lady in the powder horn calling the cops on yep. the homeless, right? Like every incentive pushes her that direction, right? And to the extent that somebody doesn't do that is, you know, like they have to push back against that. Right? They have to fight against that. If they don't, like it's like simply like, you know, I don't want to say that that's a natural to call the cops, but I mean like structurally when you're put in that yeah. position, like um, you're, you're buying into a system that inherently requires, uh, you know, the police to protect your property values right and um and to like kick out people that you find undesirable you know like you're yeah. buying in you're riding your small person riding the wave of a much larger structural uh you know position and movement yeah and in the 1960s when people complained about neighborhoods being potentially integrated and stuff like that one of the things that they would say over and over again was i'm worried about my home value And, you know, again, these are structural things to capitalism that, you know, I don't think you can get rid of those negative incentives, right? Because capitalism is fundamentally about monetizing everything. It's about turning everything into an asset that you hope appreciates and all this kind of stuff, right? And in so doing, you then become a little dictator of your of your area, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, of a little spot that you have, right? And, you know, I, it just, no matter what your housing situation, it's not going to fix this problem until housing stops being a commodity that can be bought and sold. Like, you can't, you can't fix this problem until that's gone. Yep. Right? And in the United States, a country that also has a lot of issues uh we'll say uh with racism <laughs> things like that that's going to tangle right into that web and it is going to be yeah the black teens across the street must be a gang better call the cops <laughs> yeah you know um and it shows that i you know and i don't want to make this just an episode about us complaining about uh urbanists or whatever but i think it gets to the point of our disagreement with them which is they think that this is just, you know, all you got to do is give the market these little nudges and, you know, the problem will be solved. We just got to turn the dials the right direction, right? Mm. And argument is like, no, from the ground up, the way this eco- way our economy is organized is total shit and can only lead to this, actually. Yep. You know, um, well, on that exciting note, while we go ahead and call it off here. We'll talk more housing on Ending the Myth. People, stay tuned. Munya, speaking We're of housing, coming back. has a house now. So yeah. Don't own it, but I have a home for sure. Yeah. You at least have a roof over your head. I have a roof means... over my head, which means Ending the Myth is coming back soon. That's right. Yep. Uh, stay, you know, stay tuned. I, I, stay tuned because, uh, yeah, now that I have a house, like it's over for y'all. It's a. Uh, we're coming back with vengeance after a little <laughs> bit over a month long break. So thanks everyone yeah. holding, holding to it. Yep. I mean, we haven't gotten many harder than ever. Complaints. So. Yeah. 
um, which is nice. So I appreciate you guys. Maybe because we've just no. been like pumping out episodes like since like September. Yeah, fuck that many. That's not nice. I wanted to hear more complaints. All right. Yeah. Uh, everybody People should complain privately to me. They should be crying. No, where is our yeah. ending? The myth? where is it? Yeah. Where so is I, it? I blame you, listeners, for that, and uh, that's yeah. why it's taking so long. It's because it's your fault, actually. That's uh-huh. what I'm trying to say. All right. Well, <laughs> speaking of people who it's their fault, we got new patrons. All right. So uh, let's go. Let's thank our new patrons, L and Damien. Uh, welcome to Woo-hoo! the fold. Make sure you get on that Discord. Uh, post your ape. All right. Once you get on the Discord, yep. make sure you post your ape. We're all posting apes. We're all buying the dip. Right. What, yeah. What's an ape worth these days? Ten bucks. If I get an ape probably. for ten bucks. <laughs> probably <laughs> i i stay blissfully unaware of what was going on with crypto over the weekend and i gotta say my life was better for it so uh you know i got my ape because i love the art so i don't gotta worry about this uh situation you know about the prices so <laughs> exactly i'm just an appreciator of the arts <laughs> that's why we got the museum exactly <laughs> yeah this should be better than ever for the museum right it's definitely not gonna be the death nail of the, of the nft museum that's for sure because <laughs> after all it's it's art it's definitely it's not art. just a, a secure and unregulated security <laughs> incredible what a world what a world we live in it, all right it is amazing <laughs> amazing that we all just accept that this is the best way to organize society yeah <laughs> we all just collectively shrug and like well i guess that's the way it is <laughs> couldn't be any couldn't be any other way <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right everybody bye-bye bye, bye. bye.